You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's novel, Motel California. Buy it in paperback or ebook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Michael Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Bronx-born Christopher Ryan, author of, among other works, City of Woe, City of Sin, and City of Pain. I see a theme here. But before I share with you my interview with Chris, I want to tell you how we met. In the mid and late 1990s, I had the good fortune of working at Modem Media, which built itself as the world's first interactive marketing agency. While there, I befriended a media guy named Walt Sherrick, who grew up in the Bronx. Now, I look back on my days at that agency with a lot of fondness. I was young, I was single, and I was working in a place that was practically inventing a new industry. And it must have been, you know, how the personal computer business felt in the late 1970s and early 1980s, or frankly, how the legal cannabis business is now. I enjoyed that adventure I was on. And I think that's why I enjoy writing so much, because it allows me to tap into that adventurous soul that still lives inside me, but who can't really come out to play that much because, you know, I have to be an adult. Anyway, fast forward two decades from the 90s, and Motomedia, unfortunately, is no longer a thing. But Walt and I see each other occasionally on the train into New York. And, you know, Walt, who knows I'm a writer, uh, one day he, he told me he wanted to connect me with his childhood friend, Christopher Ryan, who was a journalist turned teacher turned novelist, and the rest is history. I really enjoyed talking with Chris, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. One thing, though, as, as you know, you'll hear in the early part of this conversation, Chris talks about his time, you know, being a journalist in the Bronx, and he was a journalist in, like, the heyday of New York's crack epidemic. Now, I'm not saying crack is gone, but you know, if, if anyone you know saw the the movie uh, New Jack City with uh, the wonderful Wesley Snipes and a young Chris Rock, um, you know, it's it's probably not too far from the truth in terms of all of the violence that was going on during uh, New York's uh, crack wars. And you know, Chris was there. He was reporting on it. He was reporting on it daily. He was also, you know, talking to drug dealers uh, to get uh, to get the story, um, which is just fascinating to me. And what's also fascinating is how Chris takes these experiences he had and you know weaves them into his work as a novelist. He uh, certainly is one of those kinds of guys who, and I guess we all do this. Uh, all of us who write do this. We lean on our experiences and, and put them into our story. Uh, or stories, but um, Chris does it in a very unique way. And uh, that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with New York native Christopher Ryan. 
Well, I, I grew up in the Bronx in uh, the area called Parchester. And that's uh, Parchester is 171 buildings, most of which are linked. It was like growing up in a big maze, like a you know rat maze. Um, but you got to know a lot of people. You know, uh, there's probably 20 or 30 guys uh, that I hung out with. My brother's two years older. He had 20 or 30 years. So there was people everywhere. Yeah. And everybody told stories. And that's kind of where I started getting the bug. You know, between that and as I was a child, I was, um, I was allergic to the world. Every spring, I'd be, you know, allergies would knock me on my back. And the only thing that I could really do was read. Mm-hmm. So I'd read piles of comics and I'd read paperbacks. I used to go to uh, EJ Corvettes in the Bronx. And then they had a record department there. And the outside the wall of the record department were all these paperbacks. And that's where I found the Bantam reprints of Doc Savage and The Shadow. And, you know, so I, I just ate those up. Yeah. And uh, I think that was kind of the start of it, you know. Story, story, story. And uh, you start creating you know, comic book characters that look like the ones you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I'll tell you one other thing about my childhood tied to writing. I guess I was in seventh grade, maybe eighth grade, and I read S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders. Oh, sure, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a school assignment or something. But um, that book so knocked me out that when I finished it, I ran out to the local candy store and bought a little notebook, and um, I started writing my own novel which was a complete ripoff of The Outsiders. Thank God it was just a notebook. <laughs> but that's really what started it. You know, I, there was something about that book that made me want to mimic it and maybe want to try. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't really learn story structure until years later. Um, but it was the beginning. But you know, you know it, it's it's interesting. The, I mean, it's it's that instinct you had that you know because there's yeah. You know, look, we we all had to read The Outsiders in like seventh and eighth grade, and it's very you know think about all the 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 millions of people who've had to read that book. But you know, there was something about it that that spoke to you that encouraged you to you know mimic it or or take take a shot at at doing something similar. So there there was there was a little bit of inspiration there. Um, oh, definitely. That, um, but that's not true for everybody. I mean, so it is, it is, uh, while it may have been a mimic, it, it certainly is, um, unique to you. Oh, yeah, I, I guess. And, um, I just, I didn't think of it as a career. I didn't think of it as anything but having, I wanted to do what that was. I never thought that, you know, that it would go anywhere beyond having to do it at that moment. And it, it apparently I just kept doing those kind of things. Um, you know, you go to high school at Spelman. Uh, I went to Cardinal Spelman in the Bronx. And, you know, you could try it out for the track team or the football team or the chess club. Or I went for the newspaper and the, and the, the literary magazine. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and so what? To... I got to interview one of my heroes as a uh, uh, high school reporter. Uh, we were doing a magazine. This is for the Creative Magazine, actually. They wanted to do a New York issue, and uh, I'm 15, maybe. And uh, I said, I have an interview idea. He says, Go for it. So I called up Marvel Comics, 
and I asked in my 15-year-old wisdom to interview Stan Lee. And the woman who was on the phone last she said, you know, he's pretty busy. What's your deadline? My deadline was like three or four months away. And when I told her, innocently, not realizing, you know, how she would react, she laughed and she said, I think we can pen you in. And she did. And on that day, that appointed day, I called. And Stan Lee got on the phone with a high school student. This had to be uh, 77, 78. He gave me about probably a seven or eight minute interview, you know, and I wrote it all up and, and published it. And I, I could not believe a real person would, you know, you know, Stanley would be a real person, got on the phone and talk comics with me. So that was another big moment as far as pushing me towards uh, what eventually became a little bit of a journalism career and, um, you know, and, and knowing about storytellers and wanting to be like that. So that's, you know, you got the, uh, you got the creative Spider-Man and, uh, and Fantastic Four and, and all those things that we're seeing on the big screen now. I mean, uh, to, oh, yeah. to yeah. some big you success, know, I might add. Some of the biggest movies out there now. And this guy was willing to get on the phone with a high school student back in the 70s. God bless him. Well, uh, so tell me, um, yeah, what was what was after Cardinal Spellman? So you leave Spellman and you do what? I went from Cardinal Spellman, I went to SUNY New Paltz. And um, one of the great uh, twists of um, fate there, um, I went for all the wrong reasons. I didn't do the kind of research, you know, at, uh, in my family. I was only the second person ever to even apply for college. So I didn't really know what to look for and what to do. So uh, I fancied myself a bass player, and I was going to be a rock star. So I went to college to be a rock star, as ridiculous as that sounds. And I went up to New Poles with my electric bass and found out that their music department was orchestral. <laughs> All acoustic, uh, classical instruments. And uh, what the hell am I going to do? They... they they hooked me up with this uh, jazz bassist from uh, Woodstock, and that worked a little while. But as fate would have it, and Tony Robbins was the, one of the creative writing teachers there, and I took some of his courses, and that got me kind of excited. And then one of my roommates said, you know, you should check these journalism uh, classes out. And I met Glenn Doty, who was a professor there, and I went up to an internship with him. Excuse me, covering the um, New York State Legislature for about six months, and became a, a, a journalist for a while. I was a journalist for about eight, eight or nine years, uh, covering Bronx crime and politics, which uh, in the Bronx often the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a very in the late seventies and, and early eighties. A very blurred um, line there. So I got a lot of writing experience. I was. It was me and one other guy, and then it was just me. Was uh, was the uh, journalism department. So I wrote twenty, thirty stories a week. So I really got used to writing quickly and writing a lot. And uh, I developed a very strong ear for dialogue because I would be listening and writing down quotes and getting them really focusing on getting them right. So I listened to the cadence and how people spoke, and I got a reputation among the politicians there. They thought I was wearing a wire because I would get the quotes so accurate. But it wasn't. I just, you know, it was something that I was really dedicated to getting correct. 
Um, and it, that translated to having a bit of an ear for dialogue. And I, and I still work on that. I think that all my writing heroes have great dialogue. So, you know, you aspire to it. But So, yeah, I went from New Poles to... Bronx Journalism. I may have jumped a little ahead for you, but no, no, that's fine. So, but so you're a journalist for eight, nine years, he said. About eight or nine years in the Bronx, you know, a couple of wards, but um, it was um, it was in the uh, mid to late eighties was uh, when I was really doing most of the work, and um, early nineties, and in the Bronx, well, you know, in the United States, but in particular for me in the Bronx. <coughs> There was a crack war going on, and what I mean by that is, crack epidemic was in full flux, and I was running body counts on the front page. You know, um, ten dead or twelve dead, twenty-four wounded every week, because all these teenagers were fighting for uh, for corner space. You know, for these little markets, and uh, I would be covering them. Uh, both street news and I had a, a column called On the Streets and I would talk to the dealers or people who, you know, some little girl got shot in the, the building because of some of this stuff going down. Or One time I got a call. I had just finished the issue. I was pretty exhausted. And I got a call. I picked it up and it was a mom and she burst into tears and um, not related to crack. But um, she was begging for help for her little girl who had gotten molested at the corner store. And they had been caught up in the Bronx court system. The guy that, who done, he had done the molesting had um, agreed to um, plead guilty. But he didn't want to plead guilty in front of the little girl. So every time she showed up in court, his lawyer would get a stay and they'd send another court date. Well, this mom called me up. It was like the 19th new court date set. And they wanted, they wanted the girl there so she could get closure. Every day, every day it happened, every court date that got pushed back, the girl would go through all this pain again. So I kind of took that up. And um, when the judge told us, okay, the final court date, well, I took on the DA, and the DA said, called me in his office and said, what what do I do to get this off the front page? I said, let that guy get that ADA to make sure his client, or you know, make sure this guy pleads guilty in front of that girl. And I'll, I'll, you know, the story will be that you got it done for that girl. He promised the next court date, the judge moved it up from 1 o'clock to 11.30. The guy pled out and went to his punishment. The girl never got it. Yeah. And I gave the DA so much crap, he withdrew from his campaign. And uh, Robert Johnson became the DA. He was the first black DA in the Bronx. Um, so those were the kind of stories I was doing. And between the crack war and those kind of stories, I started getting really burnt out. And I felt like I couldn't... Uh, serve the community as well as it needed to be served. And I decided I had to become a cop. So I, I uh, took the New York City Police Department test and the psych and the physical, and I passed everything and said, okay, 
we're going to call you when the next class is ready. And um, this superintendent of one of the school districts in the Bronx called me in. And I uh, went in there thinking of uh, some stories. I get some new stories from him. Yeah. And uh, he was one of those highly educated, over-educated guys. Talked about, spoke about five, six different languages. And when I went in, he cursed me out all five, six languages and said, you know, you'd be wasted as a cop. You know, you should be a teacher and all that sort of stuff. And he bet me a steak in the best restaurant, according to him, that I would love teaching. And I took him up on that bet. And that's how I became a teacher. And um, I did not know what I had signed up for. You know, um, I was used to writing about dead kids. And that first day at work, I walked in to a building full of living, breathing, absolutely alive kids. And it was the absolute greatest thrill and um, electricity that ever hit me, you know, hit my body. And I've been teaching ever since. Uh, when the cops called, I politely declined, and I took this worst-paying job. <laughs> so you, I mean, so you, you go from, um, you know, dreams of being a bass player to uh, being a journalist and, and kind of living through the the crack, the crack wars and like mm-hmm. New Jack cities, like being played out, like right in front of you. And, and, yep. um, you know, obviously other, other things going on as well. You get burned out from being a journalist. Um, what, what, how did that life and, and, and those experiences prepare you for, for teaching? Um, I, I really had felt, uh, especially towards the last days of reporting on the crack wars, that no matter what I tried, I wasn't reaching the people who were dying as a result of the crack wars. You know, um, those kids weren't reading newspapers. You know, they didn't care what a reporter said or asked or anything. And then all of a sudden, I'm in, you know, five days a week, 10 hours, eight to 10 hours a day uh, with the same kids, the same age. Because there were so many kids who were like 13, 14, 15 that were in that body count. And now I was able to talk to them and throw my heart and soul into trying to turn them on to something in the classroom that would balance out the lore of the streets. And I was in, ironically, I, I taught in the middle school across the street from Cardinal Spellman. So I was kind of back in that neighborhood. And that neighborhood was a neighborhood that I had reported on heavily. You know, they had, they had, the projects on one side and um, private houses on the other side of the neighborhood. And there was some stuff, you know, every week there was some news there. Of course, South Bronx had, it was everywhere. It was just everywhere. But um, I got to personally uh, interact with lives as opposed to just reporting on them. And um, it was, it, it still is to this day. Uh, walking into that building, uh, uh, high, now I'm teaching high school, um, and I have for about 20 years, but walking into a building full of students, no matter what their attitude is, fills me with a, uh, an energy and a, and a zest for life that I was losing uh, reporting just on dead people. So it is uh, 
I am grateful every day for the blessing and the presence of, you know, no matter how the day goes, it is fantastic. So tell me, so you're, you're teaching for, what did you say, about 20 years? Well, I actually, I taught five years in the Bronx, and then I, I'm on my 22nd or 23rd year in the, so about 27, maybe 27 years I've been teaching. All right, so you've been in the classroom for a while. I have an idea how to do it. <laughs> when, when did you start writing? I don't want to say writing again. I'm sure you were writing, um, I don't. I don't want to assume, but well, I was doing. I was yeah. I was writing a bunch of stuff. I was in the. I was the head writer and one of the founding members of Household Comedy Troupe. So I wrote about thirty comedy strips with them, and then I wrote a sitcom with them. But really, uh, the novel writing and stuff is a direct outgrowth of teaching at Hackensack High School. Um, one of the things that I was teaching, I, was, I teach seniors. Uh, one of the things I teach every year was uh, Dante's Inferno. And they loved the ideas. When I finally broke the ideas down about, um, you know, punishment and um, gradation of, you know, as Dante organized hell, they found that fascinating. And then we would do high school hell, would do a version of, well, what would high school students be? And then who would go in modern, you know, modern hell? And it was all these things to, to think about. And what they didn't realize is that they were building up their moral core. And what they believed and what they didn't believe in, but it never hit them as at home because it just felt like often even Shakespeare feels to them as you know, that's that stuff from way you know way back when. So I said, well, what if a modern there was a modern telling that dealt with the questions of Dante's Inferno or you know the Divine Comedy, the, the bigger work? Um, so I. Combine that with my crime reporting from the reporter's days. And, uh, and while I was in grad school, I was in grad school for um, writing. And every exercise they gave me, I would re- apply to this idea of uh, pair cops chasing after um, what seems to be a serial killer that is, um, is all his murder scenes. Uh, recreations of one of the levels of Dante's Hell. Interesting. So it was called City of Woe. Eventually it was called City of Woe. Um, and that was my first novel. So uh, that was a direct reaction to being in front of the classroom with the students, talking about this literature and wanting to find a way to give them easier access. Yeah. So what what did you um, when you were going through that journey of writing the book? Actually, first of all, how long how long did it take you to write that book? The first book took a long time because I was learning how to write a book. You know, so um, I did ten uh, drafts of it. Um, the first five, the first two or three was meandering around, not really knowing how to structure and stuff. And then I, I was um, studying with Alice Elliott Dark and a couple other teachers over at uh, Rutgers Newark, getting my uh, master's. And um, I had gotten to five rewrites. And I won the um, Rutgers English Department Award for Highest Distinction in Literary Studies for that 500-page draft. And then I rewrote it 500 times, uh, five times more to get it from 500 pages to about 345. Yeah. So it was just, you know, 
half of it is how do you get a story out? And the other half was how, what do you keep of the story and what do you get rid of? And that has been an ongoing process of, of you know, when you're writing, the idea is to just get the story out. Don't worry about how sloppy it is or this or that. Get the whole story out and then go back and rewrite and, 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 and work the characters and bring it up. And, and I still do it that way. I'm a little better at it now. I'm about 10 books in, but, you know, it, you know, you keep practicing, you get a little better, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's like a muscle. I mean, right? So it's like the more you do it, the more you exercise it, the better you get at it. Yes, and and the um, the better you get at using that muscle, you know. And and what else you put into it, you know. When I'm watching a television show now, part of it is for entertainment or or a movie, or I'm going out to the films or whatever. Part of it is entertainment, and then um, I find myself going back and looking at it again. You know, how did they do this? What was this approach, and all that sort of stuff? And that becomes part of the catalog, part of uh, the, uh, as Stephen King says, part of the toolbox. When and I am a book junkie, so uh, I happen to be in my den right now, and I'm looking at it's got to be forty or fifty books on writing. Yeah, are you? And, you know, I just read, you know, read them, and then of course. You read the other authors from women, and all of that becomes part of the process. So it's always about feeding the news and and hearing what other people say and how they do it. And, you know, how did Lawrence Block do this? How did Joe R. Lansdale do that? How did Elmore write that damn dialogue? It was so great, you know? His, and, <laughs> you talk about Elmore. That guy, his ability to paint a scene, create characters, and write dialogue is... it's. Uh, I read him, and I'm like, there's no way I could ever do it that good or even attempt to copy that. It's absolutely astounding. And if you go back and look at some of that, there's almost no description. And yet you see the whole scene. You know, he sets up a little itty-bitty, you know, it's a bar, it's this, it's got wood and this and, and brass, right? and then the rest is dialogue, and you know where those guys are. You know when the you know when the femme fatale walks in, whatever, and it always feels like it's living and breathing, and that you're sitting two stools away, and that's one of the things that uh, I aspire to to be able to create that kind of dialogue, where you know three hours have gone by and you're still reading the book, or you know you're a little late for going to sleep because you want to read that one more chapter. Yes, that's you know that's what you work for to give the reader something he or she doesn't want to put down yeah, and feels like, you know, satisfied with. That's yeah, what you owe the reader. It's like, so, it's like the way I think about go. it, it's, it's like music. I mean, I know you're, it sounds like you're a music guy too, but like, you know, you, you grow up and, you know, I grow up learning, trying to, trying to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen. I mean, never happened. Right. Sure. But, but you've got that sort of goal, that inspiration. And then, you know, as as I listened to music and I and I you know I was a big hard rock heavy metal guy in the eighties and nineties and um, you could actually hear Eddie Van Halen's influence in other guitar players you know I listened to you know for example uh, this reference might be lost on everybody listening but Nuno Bettencourt from Extreme I can hear Eddie Van Halen in him the same way you know authors you know get influenced by other authors you know I love. 
um, Carl Hyacin, and I aspired to create characters as wacky and interesting as him. Right. And, you know, and Carl, he was a, a reporter, a columnist, so he, where he gets all his stuff, I think, is, is out going out and talking to people and meeting people, and then, you know, once you're outside, you realize that, you know, Fact is crazy and efficient. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially in his in his situation, because I and I grew up in South Florida. I mean, Florida is just a weird state. So whatever he was reporting on for, I think it was the Miami Herald. I mean, that is absolutely mm-hmm. true. The truth is much stranger than fiction. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, and he just he draws draws from it and from a lifetime of meeting those people, living and breathing those people, and. You know, that's that's the kind of guys you, you you want to soak up how they do that. You know, and go out and meet your own people. You know, you have to live your life, but it's 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 a combination of all those things. You know, when you um, were when you were finally um, happy with with City of Woe, did you did you shop it around? Did you pitch agents? Did you query? I did actually. I, I actually did. I um, it, it's very. This is kind of a, an odd thing too. Um. I shopped it around, uh, and I went to Thriller Fest in New York City, one of the earlier Thriller Fests, and they had agent sets. So you would go, and you would pitch to, I think they had like 30 agents, and I pitched to 26 of them, 27 of them. 25 of them were interested. And little by little, each one of them passed, because they kept saying, you need more of a platform, you need more of a following, and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, who is the best one? David Moss. Is that his name? He, uh, Donald Moss. Donald Moss had the best, it was the best rejection I ever got. You know, it was detailed. And he said, you know, I like this, I like that. This stuff is great, and all that sort of stuff. He says, oh, I'm not picking it up. It's, I, I, I don't want buddy detectives. Um, uh, that's nothing that I want to do right now. But, it, you know, keep going and all that sort of stuff. He didn't need to say those kind of things. But it, it pushed me on, and I kept going to different cons and conventions and workshops. And this was when the um, independent publishing was starting to really break, you know. And um, I gave it a shot. And what I was told that those independent publishing was that, you know, that is the way to create the platform. That is the way that you create the following that, you know, the publishers are looking for. So I listened and I put out City of Woe and the sequel City of Pain. And there's a prequel collection of short stories, City of Sin. And I did a high school thriller called Genius High. And I did... To cup three, maybe four, um, quick read novellas for the, Alex Simmons' character Blackjack, which mm-hmm. is a 1930s um, soldier of fortune, African American. And then I recently did one called The Simple Rebellion, which was kind of my reaction to the split in America, the divide in America these days. And if you if you look at that and say, where is that going to go? How far? And you go to the furthest reaches of where it could go that's a simple rebellion that's that so i have all this sort of stuff and i'm told now that well 
now those publishers you were looking to build a platform to um, appease or to attract, they don't want any of the stuff you published. <laughs> they will never look at it or touch it. And I, I, I got to say, I'm kind of in a situation where, okay, well, what is your what is your requirement? What is your platform that you're looking for? I have a good following on um, social media. Uh, these books sell okay. They could sell better. Well, you know, um, the reviews are strong. It would be interesting to see now. It's a, the newest challenge is, okay, I'm going to take all of this and say, I know, I know you don't want to sell these. Here's my next book. But this is what I've done to get ready for this book. So, you know, that's that's been my experience with um, with publishing. You know, the big publishing houses, they're under a lot of pressure. They'd love you to have the kind of audience that would pre-sell. It's not like, say, the 70s or, you know, when, like, Stephen King didn't have uh, a following when he first started, but he, he was given a couple of books to, to get it going and that kind of stuff. And... Um, I think now I've I've created enough of a, uh, a foundation where I could look to any publisher in the eye and say, hey, look, that's what I've done. These are some words I've won. These are the different uh, genres I've written in, and here's the latest work. And I think you should take it seriously. So you know, this is this is what the journey has been. I'm proud of my my work so far, and I'm ready to move forward. You know, I, th- I think about, like, because um, I, I do a lot of um, self-publishing or independent publishing, I guess is the, the, the correct term these mm-hmm. days. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, you just see how many books are out in the Kindle store right now. And oh yeah, it's like, okay, well, there is so much out there. You need something more to break through. So just having great content mm-hmm. is not enough. You need to figure out a way to kind of get it in front of people and get people to, to recommend it to other people. And I, oh, I mean, yeah. I haven't cracked that yet. It's, it, it, you know, I, and I work in marketing for a living, you know, I, I know oh, wow. I help brands, you know, I'm a marketing consultant. I help brands market their products better. I can't market my own stuff. It's like physician heal thyself. I, I don't, you know, yeah, it's, um, it, it is a challenge and I've, I've gone through the extra steps of making sure that um, I'm as error-free, the content is as error-free as possible, that it's quick, that it's moving. I have multiple uh, uh, beta readers uh, to um, check for quality. I spend the money on uh, professional covers. I do some marketing, but, you know, it, some of the changes have been really shocking, like Goodreads used to have, uh, you know, you had the ability to, to give away uh, uh, a number of books to kind of get the initial reviews and, and start, you know, start the ball rolling. And they recently switched it. They recently were bought by, I guess it was last year, two years ago now, bought by uh, uh, Amazon, if I remember correctly. And now, Goodreads, if you want to do that, if you want to have that contest to give away um, a book, you can do it for $199. Right. And for the first time ever, if you want to give away digital copy books, it'll only cost you $599. Yeah, it's, it's, it's... That, that goes against the, uh, the independent publisher who 
I mean, he doesn't have that kind of cash, you know? Well, it's a, a frustrating thing because I would be doing contests in all my books right now. You I, know, and, and let them get out there and give people a taste and, and, and believe in my product enough that, yeah, if you taste it, you're going to like it, you know, and, and you'll come back for the other books. You know, I did... I, Go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to say I did um, earlier this year when they when they launched. I think it was in January. They launched um, the ebook um, giveaway for Goodreads, and I did it for because there were there was it was pretty cheap. If you just did, they had two levels, or they have two levels. One is like a premium, and one is basic. I did basic, and it was under a hundred bucks. So I did it for a couple oh, okay. of the books, and. You know, the nice thing about it is when for the Kindle, so all sales will go through the Kindle store. You'll get 100 purchases that day. I mean, they're free, but but if somebody leaves a review, it's a verified review, which is the nice aspect of it. Right. But between between that giveaway and then I would do, you know, a Kindle daily promotion um, if, if a book was right. in KDP Select, which most of mine aren't, but one of them is. And I, I wound up, like, moving, like, 3,000 units in a day. But... I got wow. no reviews from it. So you you almost wonder, are these real people who are buying and downloading them or, or not? Because I figured, okay, if 1% left a review, that still leaves you, you know, I, I'm not good at math. Is that 30 reviews or three reviews? I mean, it's something. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the percentage of with those giveaways of um, purchases, in quotes, translating to... Uh, reviews is, you know, it's, it's down below 5%. Yeah. You know, and I, I think you have a lot of people, or we have a lot of people who download but don't read. Um, one of the things I watch with the uh, Kindle Select is purchases and then pages read. Right. And it, you, you got to be careful. You get obsessed with that stuff, and it, it could be brutal. If you have, you know, if you have a um, a giveaway or a um, promotion um, weekend or something like that, and you see, wow, there goes a thousand, you know, uh, uh, copies. This is going to be fantastic. And then the reading the reading pages are in the hundreds. You're like, what happened? You know, and it's just there are so many people who will download anything for free, and then you know. In their Kindle, they have hundreds and hundreds of books, and you know you're lost in the dungeon of <laughs> that's right of Kindle. So, I really would love to figure out uh, how to get you know the quality readers, the readers who are going to pick up that book and read it. And I was sure that it was going to be Goodreads, um, and uh, I have been working through my disappointment with, <laughs> with those. Um, you know, with that, with those price tags there, I will eventually, you know, I will eventually make my piece, I think, or maybe they'll, you know, become more you know, reasonable. Uh, I like the one you said about the hundreds for, was it 99? That's, that's not a bad uh, uh, ratio, but, oh, no, that was on Kindle, right? Or yeah. Or was that Goodreads? That was, uh, I think it was Goodreads, but I, I know that was a promotion, and I think they're, it's, it's pretty expensive now. I think it's over 100 bucks for it. Yeah, it is. A, it's very expensive now. And, you know, what they're saying is, well, we are, you know, we have our members on Goodreads, our followers are readers. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I agree with you. And, <laughs> and it was a very profitable 
uh, uh, business model that you had, and now it kind of feels like you're pimping them. And <laughs> it's, just, it's so frustrating because you're that close. And, and I think if, if, it, if they're thinking for Amazon sales, well, you know, you do this and it catches on, you're going to get all those other sales. You would, you would think that you'd want independent writers to give independent writers the uh, ability to draw a big, you know, build a big following in Goodreads because it would drive sales to your Amazon. Um, I think they're looking for the short money rather than the long money. Yeah. What do I know? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not Amazon. <laughs> right, right. Well, they're, they're not doing too bad in the sales department themselves as a whole. Yeah, anyway. unfortunately, I don't have a big argument for them because they're doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. They've come a long way since they were just selling uh, books online. Now it's uh, oh my gosh, it's you know, it's it's like a it's, it's like the yeah, Walmart of the internet. You can buy Utah on Amazon, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, this has been great. What's what's next for you? Working on anything right now? Anything that you're going to publish in the near well, term? Well, I am. I'm um, I'm working on a, a couple of short stories for uh, I'm going to submit to an. Uh, anthology that the writers, um, the Mystery Writers of America, is uh, uh, taking submissions for, and uh, then I have a, um, it's a sequel of sorts to Genius High, which was a high school thriller. Um, one character transfers over, and it's called Perfect, and it's about. Um, a young lady who is discovering that she actually might be a physically perfect specimen. Hmm. And that it might be because her mom, a genetic engineer, may have messed with her genetics. Interesting. uh, Because she was working for the military and was doing that for the military. However, if she gets uh, uh, um, discovered by the military as that perfect specimen, they're going to want to turn her into a soldier. So that's where all the thrills and chills comes from. Um, and then I am going to return to the cops. And I have uh, the third part of the city trip, uh, um, uh, the city trip uh, trilogy, City of Woe, uh, Echoes, um, Dante's Inferno, and City of Pain, Echoes, the Purgatorio. And I'm working on City of Love which will echo um, Paradiso. So, um, but in a very fast-moving New York City cop kind of way, not at all in a Dante poetic way. You hey, know what I'm hey, I got you. <laughs> I hear you knocking. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you very much for spending this time with me, and I wish you all the best. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christopher Ryan. You can learn more about Chris and his books at chrisryanwrites.blog. If you want to learn about me, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And if you like what you hear on Uncorking a Story, please tell a friend about it. You love it when you do that. And from all of us here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time.